I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. Uh, what got you there? What got you, got you If you're enjoying the podcast, then you might want to check out some of the other things I'm working on behind the scenes. I put out a weekly newsletter called Momentum Monday, which is just a quick synthesis of everything I've been reading, listening to, and watching during the week. I also do a once a month deep dive called The Distillery, which is a long form distillation on someone whose thinking has greatly impacted me. You can check out past distillations of Josh Waitskin, Yen Liao, and Nick Konis, and everything else we're putting on at whatgotyouthere.com. Hey guys, I am so fired up about this episode with Mike Sorelli, and and Mike's a a retired U.S. Navy SEAL officer and former enlisted recon marine and scout sniper. He's also the the founder and CEO of Talent War Group, which is a a leading management consulting and executive search firm. He he also is the best-selling author of the book, The Talent War, How Special Operations and Great Organizations Win on Talent. So we're going to talk so much about different mindsets that, that he used in his time as, as a Navy SEAL and also uh, as a scout sniper, uh, recon marine. But we also talk about understanding w- what are the values, what are the attributes needed to win in the business world and how we can find those people and then also cultivate and develop that talent as well. Uh, Mike is one of those people who just has immense experience and knowledge. Uh, some of that experience, he served on SEAL Team 3 Task Unit Bruiser, and they're known as the most decorated special operations task unit of the Iraq War. Uh, I know a lot of the r- listeners are familiar with former Navy SEAL Jocko Willink, and that, that was part of his group as well. Um, and, and he also served, actually, as the Junior Officer Training Course Director um, at BUDS. And so he coached, he mentored, and prepared Junior SEAL officers to lead combat operations. So he understands what it takes to develop that talent. And and then he was also part of the Naval Special Warfare Development Group, DevGru, um, also known as SEAL Team 6, which which I know a lot of you will be familiar with as most likely the most elite organization in the military. So so Mike has 10 plus deployments um, on the war on terror. He, he talks about skill development, leadership, mindsets, and so much more in this conversation. So I think this is one of those conversations you guys are going to love with, with former retired U.S. Navy SEAL Mike Sorelli. Anyone who's interested in investing in high-end art, I think you're going to want to listen up to the latest support of the podcast, and that's the company Masterworks. And Masterworks is an online investment platform valued at over a billion dollars, and they give everyone like you and me an opportunity to invest in high-end art. And when I say high-end art, I'm thinking about Picasso, Warhol, or Banksy. And this is an opportunity for all of us to get in on investments and potentially build generational wealth. And if you think about contemporary art, it has actually outpaced the S&P 500 by almost threefold from 1995 to 2020. And what Masterworks understands and what they do is they actually understand that investing in high-end art is really hard. And most of the time, you have to sell a major tech company or ransack a museum in order to have the ability to invest in these pieces. And what Masterworks does is they buy a piece of art, and then they file it, the work with SEC, sort of like filing for a public company IPO. And then we can buy shares representing an investment in that painting. And so Masterworks holds the piece, and when they sell, we would get a prorated portion of the profit. And I know people invested in Masterworks, and some of these early adopters saw a 32% return on a Banksy sale in 2020. 
So if you're interested in diversifying your investment portfolio and investing in high-end art, I think you'll want to check out Masterworks. So go to masterworks.io slash what got you there to get priority access to their exclusive community. Once again, that's masterworks.io slash what got you there. You can also see important disclosures at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. Are you looking for a delicious and healthy nutrition bar that is keto-friendly, low-sugar, and protein-infused? If so, look no further than New School Snacks, who's reinventing the low-sugar snacking revolution. Now, for me, health is one of the biggest things I think about, and eliminating the sugar from my diet is crucial, and that's why I love New School Snacks. So if you're one of those people who also want to change the way you approach nutrition and snacking, then head to NewSchoolSnacks.com for great deals on their collagen bar loaded with healthy fats from MCT oil, and while you're there, pick up one of their brand new mouth-watering French Toast Crunch Bars. That's NewSchoolSnacks.com. Mike, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you, Sean. I'm fired up for this one. This is one of those really interesting, fun conversations that's going to encapsulate a lot. But I would love to know if you could pass on one of your mindsets to someone just starting out their career, what would you love to pass on to everyone? It's uh, a mindset I call the ADA way. And uh, we, we refer to it as one step at a time. It really is the realization that with each step, whether that step is successful successful, or it's a, it's a failure, uh, each step takes you somewhere. And whether, again, it's a success or failure, you learn from each step. We all want success overnight. It doesn't exist. If I look back on my career, which I started as an enlisted recon Marine, um, which is the Marine Corps Special Operations Community, and then all of a sudden I, I want to become a SEAL and I make it into the SEAL teams. And then I found, find out that there's a tier one group above all special operations and I made it there. And then my MBA in business after business, um, it's been a long path and arguably I've hit some success in my life. Uh, I'm not dwelling on that much like I don't dwell on my failures, but none of that happened overnight, uh, especially for a 119 pound kid that joined the Marine Marines. And then I leave, you know, at around 200 pounds, um, you know, it was a 20 year journey and, and I'm still on that journey. So Take everything one step at a time, and if you stay in the moment and you try to learn from each day, uh, then I tell you what, you're going to be a lot more equipped to deal with life's difficulties, and I guarantee if you take it one step at a time, you will get to whatever your goal is a lot quicker than just you know, mindlessly following uh, you know, no path. Mike, I think one of the, the really important things you hit on is that everything's not just going to be a perfect success, right? And and understanding that going in, but then also taking those difficult times, those tough moments, and learning from them to develop you moving forward. I, I just wanted to highlight that because I think that's so important. I, I'm wondering, if, if you were to like look at all your different mindsets, I know this is broad, but is that the one you've spent the most time cultivating? Is that just like the, the lifelong one you've got to just spend so much time with? I would hate to say that it's been my lifelong mindset. You know, I was so caught up in the moment that I didn't take time to reflect on how I got to where I got. Hmm. And it was in the military, special special operations during time of war, it's on to the next thing and on to the next thing and on to the next thing. And it's after I retired that I tr truly started to reflect on what made me successful and where I failed and could have done a better job. Um, so really in the last three years, because I only retired three years ago, 
Have I truly been putting pen to paper and trying to codify, codify what this mindset is and how, you know, uh, I, I approach success or any, any daunting task. Um, and it's the realization now that, you know, it was a series of millions and millions of steps to get where I've, uh, I've gotten. It's so crucial. So many people think like it, it happens overnight. It's, it's instantaneous. My father-in-law used to say an overnight success takes 15 years. One of the things I want to hit on though, because you said it wasn't until you got out of your 20 plus year military career that you were able to reflect as a leader, as an executive entrepreneur, someone in a business, how do you zoom in and then also zoom out? Uh, not after you've left the corporate world. I'm wondering how we can do this for people who are in, in green and, and just part of that process right now. So, and this is Sean, this is what I do for a living. I come in and uh, we, we do leadership development for organizations based off the special operations uh, model. Now, when I talk about reflection, you know, I'm talking about from a personal level. Of course, during my 20 years, uh, I did reflect, but I did quickly move on to the next thing. Uh, for entrepreneurs, those running a business, you have to put this, this reflection, organizational reflection, this, this process, uh, you've got to put it into place in your, in your businesses. The one thing the special operations community does extremely well is after everything we do, we do an after action review, what we call an AAR for short, because we put an acronym on everything. In the business world, some people call these debriefs. What I've noticed is that very few, probably less, less than 1% of all the businesses I've uh, worked with only about 1% actually conduct this after action review. And what it is, is it's simply a candid, uh, vulnerable process where we say, hey, whether we succeeded or failed, what did we do well and what, what, what did we do poorly during that last evolution? And how can we improve? So, you know, it's not a long drawn out uh, process. It can be based off of the, 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 let's say the volume or, or the size of the project you, you just completed. But you can even take five minutes at the end of the day to bring your team in and say, hey, we all get one point, whether it's a success or failure, what's that one thing we learned today? And if you do that every five minutes, I'm sorry, for five minutes at the end of every day, or maybe you can't do it every day, you do 30 minutes at the end of the, end of the week, I guarantee your organization will learn. Each person on an individual level will learn from one another's, both their successes and their failures, and you'll put the steps in place to make the, the business uh, more efficient, more effective, and, and to deliver better good or service to your uh, your customers. But very few organizations do that outside of the special operations community. Yeah, you mentioned so few. I mean, I, I have some ideas on why so few do it. Why do you think that is, that so few organizations do it today? So this is a great question. Um, and here's the most common uh, answer I get. So when I'm in uh, businesses uh, sort of explaining this process, and, and, you know, Dan Coyle, who wrote the talent code and uh, culture code, actually came into my last command, tier one command, and he observed us doing this after action uh, review. And he wrote about it in the culture code. It works. But the most common uh, sort of excuse I get from usually it's the smartest person in the room is say, hey, Mike, that's great in the military because you guys have the time. In the business world, we don't have the time. And that is a complete load of you know what. And so what I do with, with those individuals is, is I listen to them and, and hear their explanation for not having the time to conduct the after action review. And, and I give them a sense of what our normal day was on deployment. Afghanistan, for, for instance, where we were averaging four to five hours of sleep a day if we were lucky, where we're on uh, what we call vampire hours because we operate at night. 
It gives us an advantage over the enemy. Um, and so maybe I'm up at 11 a.m. I get my quick one hour workout in because I got to maintain my, my cardio, my physical fitness. And then, um, you know, I start reading intelligence reports with my staff. And by 6 p.m., we may have an enemy target uh, fixed to a certain location. We go into a rapid planning cycle. And then maybe at 10 a.m. or I'm sorry, 10 p.m., we fly off into the night, hike for about four hours in the mountains to get to the target. We get in a firefight, either kill or capture the enemy. And if we're lucky, we get home by dawn, 6 a.m. to to 8 a.m. Guys are dehydrated. They're exhausted. And everyone just wants to eat something and go to sleep. But as professionals, what do we do? We actually reload our our magazines, uh, put our radios back in the charger, make sure our kit's ready for the next night because we know we're probably going out the next night. And then we all meet in a room. And then even though we're, again, we're hungry, dehydrated, and tired, if it takes us an hour, it takes us an hour. If it takes us two hours, it takes us two hours. But we conduct that after-action review because we know that's the process through which we improve both individually and organizationally. And the level of professionalism uh, during these could not have made me uh, prouder because we know that we're going back out the next night and we may have learned one thing that may make us more effective over the enemy or may uh, result in bringing our guys home alive. And so that's what we were willing to do. Now, if you want to argue that, well, in business, you know, the risk is in life and death, okay, be that as it may. But the risk is whether your business is around for 10 years or around for one year. And again, that's up to you. And you have to have the discipline. This is what it comes down to, the self-discipline to one, uh, you know, structure your schedule in a way that you allot time for this at the end of the day or the end of the week. And if you don't, you have no one else to blame but yourself. Yeah, I think you, you see that amongst the, the high performers, the, the elite leaders out there. They have that little bit of discipline. Like you mentioned, it doesn't take too much. But at the end of the day, recapping, doing those little things. It's funny you mentioned uh, some of those, those business leaders say we don't have the time. There's this great uh, Henry Ford story where I think I think it was one of his uh, executives said, what happens if we spend all the time training up our, our leaders and they leave the organization? And he says, what happens if we don't do that? And like that, that was 100 years ago, and I love how applicable it is today. We have to train up our talent, develop them, uh, because if not, we're just setting ourselves up for failure right there. One of the things that you mentioned is, is that you got to spend your time in the military for 20 years, and that really is like the elite training ground for leadership. So many people aren't going to have that experience. So if you were designing that system, and this can just be someone fresh out, out of college, they've got that growth mindset they want to develop, like what, what are the big buckets they need to be thinking about in order to develop themselves as leaders? Well, let me, let me actually step back and take that question. You know, you just said something that we preach that the military is the world's greatest uh, leadership incubator, um, period. I mean, especially if you look at the service academies, the Air Force Academy, uh, the Naval Academy, and, and even though I come from the Navy, my favorite academy, West Point, uh, they produce some of the nation's finest leaders. I don't know what has happened since World War II, where the American public, and this does exist, people who say, oh, no, we, we love our military. Yes, everyone loves the military. But they've, they've, what I've seen is there's this view that for people to join the military, it was the last resort. It, it, for me and my experience for 20 years, it was the complete opposite. You have individuals who were college athletes, college educated, um, some of the most just prolific leaders I've ever met who could have went into the business world and started companies and be multimillionaires by now. But they had this selfish, uh, selfless gene where they, they had a sense of purpose and, and pride in their country. And so they joined. And to make it into the special operations community, it is very elite. But these leaders, 
we're not, you know, there's some bad examples out there of, of people uh, that represent the military that, you know, are yelling stuff like uh, get some and, and uh, you know, this, this ultra aggressive attitude, the most elite lethal warriors I knew uh, were the most empathetic, respectful, quiet, or what we call silent professionals. And you would never know what they did. They would just have a conversation with you in, in, in an airport uh, bar and you'd think, wow, that was a, an amazing man or woman. And, um, you know, Hollywood shapes a lot of uh, perceptions of what people think in the military and they do an awful job. They've got to sell films. So everything is PTSD. We walk around yelling at every, everyone. And again, that was uh, the complete opposite uh, of my experience. Um, you know, the, the best leaders I had were, were, were coaches and mentors. They didn't yell. Uh, even when you failed, they pulled you and they saw that as an opportunity to help you learn and make you a better leader. We do not shy away from failure. Uh, we understand that it's part of the, the, the process. So for a young college graduate, um, don't try to boil the ocean. Understand that this is a lifelong process. I am, well, I turned 44 on Thursday um, and, and I still have 30, 40 years of mentorship left uh, as a leader. I do not have this figured out. And I studied under some world-class leaders like Admiral William McRaven, like Wyman Howard, like Dave Cooper. I mean, some of the most amazing leaders I've ever served with. And so, you know, read as much as you can, read at least one book on uh, business leadership or combat leadership a week. Um, seek out mentors who you highly respect. Uh, and one, they treat people with respect and you know they'll, they'll put time into you. Uh, talk to everyone, open your aperture, and again, conduct that personal after-action review. At the end of every night, and I even do this for one minute, just ask yourself, what did you do well? Do more of that. Ask yourself what you did poorly. And you know, again, put steps in place to get better at that thing you did poorly. And if you have this self-reflection, which is the greatest common theme I've seen of all leaders, they were highly reflective, uh, you are on a path that very few uh, figure out at an early age. Uh, and then work hard. Nothing replaces hard work. Don't be entitled. You're not entitled to everything. It seems uh, nowadays that everyone thinks they're going to make 60000 out of college and that they, uh, they're entitled to equity. Uh, that's, that's not the case. And, and if you were handed equity, uh, I'd think twice about that, uh, that company. Uh, earn it. Earn it. And uh, there is no replacement for, uh, for hard work. And lastly, treat people with respect. Um, you know, there's a lot of people out there that are rich in the bank and that's great. I highly admire them for what they've accomplished, but they are absolutely poor in character. And so I make sure my tribe, my circle, cause you know, iron sharpens iron is so is one man sharpens another. I make sure that the people I surround myself are, uh, high achievers, uh, that they're respectful to other people, that they're selfless and that they'll take care of one another to include me. And so you've got to be careful about who you surround yourself with as well. Mike, one of the things you bring up uh, around great leaders, and I, I know you, you've you served with a lot, and in certain ones we've even had on the show. I know, I know Chris Fossil was someone you worked with, uh, and then someone else that we, we do a once-a-month deep dive on someone called the distillery, and actually last month was Johnny Kim, one, one of these these humble leaders. What do you do 
when, when you were surrounded by someone like this every day, I'm thinking about certain people are really lucky in certain organizations to, to be around these humble leaders. And, and how do we learn and grow the most from them? I, I'm just wondering if there's anything that you did throughout your time in the military when you knew you were surrounded by someone like that just to take more of their lessons with you. Well, it's funny you met, mentioned Chris Fussell and then Dr. Uh, Johnny Kim, who both had a uh, extreme impact on my life. I'll start with Chris Fussell. Uh, and I have a letter from Chris Fossil that he wrote me in 2012. And he was overseas, again, averaging four hours of sleep. He didn't have the time. And he wrote me a five-page email as I was leaving his command. He was my commander and moving to uh, another uh, subsequent command under the, the same umbrella. And that letter stays with me in what he wrote and some of the most sage advice I've ever received. Chris, again, uh, a good practice that Chris put in place for what you call your junior officers. And I was one of his junior officers. Uh, every Friday at 10 a.m., he would have all of us meet in his, uh, his office and he would do professional development. He would coach and mentor us and things he'd learned, things he'd done well, uh, technical skills, uh, as well as things he did poorly. And at first, not knowing the guy, I actually dismissed it. I'm like, who the hell does this guy think he is? We don't have the time for, for a one hour, two hour session. And after the first one, I was completely wrong. And I formed a close relationship with Chris. And that is somebody that all leaders should seek out, especially in the business uh, world, uh, to uh, to gain uh, advice from. And of course, that's why he's General McChrystal's right-hand man. Uh, Dr. Johnny Kim, this is a good story, I think, that uh, that resonates. Is Johnny and I, and, and I, you know, I say Dr. Johnny Kim, I call him Johnny. We went to Bud's together. And Johnny was this scrawny little kid, this Korean-American from L.A., uh, almost, you know, to the stereotype. And uh, I saw him, you know, I'm a recon Marine. Uh, and I'm like, God, oh, that kid probably won't make it. That's, that's, that's how much time I gave Johnny. And at the end of hell week, when out of the 250, I think there was 30 of us left, you know, I looked down the line and there's Johnny Kim. And I was completely wrong. I judged a book by its cover. And as I watched Johnny, because we both went to SEAL Team 3 together, we were in the same task unit together. I actually watched him conduct the action where he uh, was awarded the Silver Star. And I could not be more proud. And I've actually told Johnny, I'm sorry. I, I, I completely made a, a, a snap judgment on you. And, and you know, got SEAL, Silver Star, Harvard-educated doctor, NASA astronaut, all by the age of 34. Perfect human. And actually, I just lined him up. We have our centennial class, uh, our BUDS reunion. Uh, we were class 247, 347. Uh, graduates in February and just lined him up to uh, to speak to that class. Um, he was the perfect guy with the, uh, the perfect message. But um, again, it goes back to your tribe. Your tribe matters and your tribe is very influential in your maturation, your development as a person and as a leader. Um, and everyone wants a tribe. Uh, you know, the SEALs are, 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 are an ultimate tribe. Uh, the Boy Scouts are a tribe. Even something like the Hell's Angel or worse, ISIS are a tribe. Uh, we'd argue that they're a tribe. I mean, they're a culture nonetheless, um, but they're a tribe that reinforces, uh, you know, evil, um, evil uh, values. So you've got to be careful, again, who you surround yourself with. Um, and again, I, I, I resort back to Chris and, and Johnny for, for advice and uh, humbled to even be associated uh, with them. One of the things you mentioned with, with those great leaders, um, even just like looking at a book by its cover with, with Dr. Kim, how much of their ability 
was nature versus nurture, right? Like, like how much were they just born with and then how much can get developed and, and cultivated over time? You know, the, the nature versus nurture um, argument, uh, I don't put much uh, credence on, on nature. Yeah. I don't. My family is not physically uh, overbearing. We were never the best at sports, but somehow, you know, I stepped into the SEAL teams and was, was you know, uh, physically uh, beating guys on runs, even though I'm, I'm, I'm a larger guy, beating guys on swims um, and, and holding my own. Um, it's because I worked at it. And, and I had great parents that nurtured me, that always pushed me, um, not too hard. But, um, you know, if you split twins at birth, put one in a home uh, where, you know, they were constantly engaging in leadership development, would that, which is what parenting is, is trying to create a, a uh, empathetic, respectful, competent, self-reliant human being. And then you put the other twin in a, uh, you know, household described by, uh, abuse, both mental and physical, and they will develop into two wildly different people. Um, now, you know, the SEALs, the assessment and selection process is you have to have that mental toughness to even make it through the training. That's ultimately what we're looking for. You know, we don't put these young men and women through uh, training because we're sadistic. You know, we're trying to reinforce that your mind will break long before your body uh, does. Your body is resilient. And even though during Hell Week, you're going to run close to a hundred, uh, I think miles, uh, you know, even with the 200 pound boats on your head, you're constantly moving, uh, without sleep, your body is resilient. It will keep going. Uh, you know, with the, the exception, if you break a bone or something along those lines, um, but your mind, your, your, your mind will break if it's not, not strong. Now, even when you make it into the SEAL community, once you make it past, uh, you know, SEAL training, it's like, great. You, you've passed the entrance exam, uh, in, and you see who's receptive to mentorship and coaching and who is not. Uh, and, you know, there's a caveat to that, too. There are some, let's put it this way. There are some piss poor leaders in the SEAL teams that we allow to remain in the community. And that is extremely frustrating. Now, when those piss poor leaders get a hold of young SEALs, that is a bad, bad situation because they usually reinforce the wrong values. And a lot of those SEALs go on to have short careers or, let's say, uh, subpar careers. So who you end up under a, as a uh, mentee does matter, but your development uh, is only beginning once you make it into your into the SEAL teams and you report into the first, first SEAL team. Uh, you ultimately are going to determine whether you have a long and productive career uh, because you have an open mind. You can accept feedback. You can check your ego. You can allow yourself to be vulnerable or uh, you know, you're going to be full of ego. You can't ego. You can't listen to anyone. And usually those guys uh, were unconsciously incompetent and their reputation suffered severely in the uh, the SEAL teams and nobody wanted to work with them, quite frankly. When did that puzzle piece go into place for you that you understood just how powerful the mind was? You know, I think it started in Marine Corps boot camp. My dad uh, came from very little and did very well and provided my brothers and my brother and sister a very, very good life. Uh, we, we grew up in Atherton, California, which is one of the most affluent uh, towns in America. Sort of uh, the who's who of Silicon Valley lives there. Um, and I really wanted to prove to my dad who, you know, uh, again, came from nothing and had to earn everything that, you know, he had raised me well as well as my mom and that I could do it on my own. 
And it was the realization when you, you go to Marine Corps boot camp, which is a scary prospect, uh, that you're on your own. And, you know, there was a great sense of loneliness, even though you're surrounded by, I forget how many kids were in my, my boot camp, I think like 60. Even though you're surrounded by 60 other people that are going through the same thing, there's a sense of loneliness. And that was real hard to overcome and to block out and to focus the task uh, at hand. But, you know, I had great drill instructors who I highly admired. And uh, at the end of the day, they want you to succeed. So they're giving you all the input, the, the, the techniques, the, 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 the tactics to succeed in the Marine Corps and to become mentally tough. But it was a journey. And I'll actually say the Marine Corps boot camp was probably the toughest for me. After that, it was, uh, you know, as I stepped into recon school, which again has a high attrition rate, uh, one person told me the one thing the instructors can't control is the clock and every evolution has to end. And I took that same mindset, you know, I became more mentally tough as I became a recon Marine. I became a scout sniper. I went to Marine OCS and graduated the Army and set some records. My mental toughness started to, to build. And so it is, it is something you can build self-discipline. Again, by taking small steps every day and those small steps add up, you can build your mental toughness. Um, again, so you got to identify a starting point that's reasonable and then build upon that. And so by the time we got to SEAL training or I got to SEAL training, it wasn't, and I don't want to sound arrogant, failing or quitting wasn't an option. The war was going on and all I cared about is let's get this done the first time around as quickly as possible because there's people downrange fighting and that's where I need to be. That's where my contribution is, is going to take place. And it just worked out uh, for me it, it, just like that. But, you know, there's guys that get hurt in, uh, in SEAL training. Some of them stay there for, for a year during the first, what's supposed to be a six-month phase. They stay there over a year because they just get injured and injured. And they, they won't quit. They say, hey, you want to recycle to the next class? And their answer is hell yes. And so I had a lot of friends that did that, and I highly admire them. Because, again, Bud's, much like Marine Boot Camp, is not a fun place to be. Well, one of the things you say is you don't want to come off as arrogant. I think there's a there's a major difference between unearned arrogance and earned confidence. And I, I would love to know how much confidence just plays into this entire journey for you. Uh, confident that I could overcome any obstacle. Not arrogant enough to know that I wasn't going to do it on the first try. Hmm. Uh, again, I wasn't naturally gifted, not physically, not tactically. Um, and, and, you know, it. I, I just knew that no matter what, I was going to find a way to persevere. Uh, and I didn't think it was going to be pretty easy. There, a lot of my victories in life are completely ugly. The one thing Hollywood paints is, you know, uh, that everything looks cool on the, the, the combat missions in Afghanistan, Iraq, or elsewhere. They were ugly. Our victories were ugly. But at the end of the day, we were victorious. We won almost every battle we were tasked with. Um and so how you win matters, but don't expect it to be this, this uh, you know, crystal clear, neat, pretty process. It's not. You know, the funniest thing, because I didn't grow up uh, shooting guns, again, in California, uh, the Bay Area, um, I scored expert on the rifle in boot camp. I was shocked. Again, I just listened to what the drill instructors told me. I didn't have any bad habits. But once they put a pistol on my hand, once I got to the, uh, the Marine Corps, I didn't even qual on the pistol. I failed. And, you know, I was utterly embarrassed in front of my peers. But again, I had a good mentor that said, Hey, uh, meet me on the weekends. We'll get you up to speed. And then less than month, one month uh, after practicing, I called expert on the, uh, the pistol. So, um, 
you know, yeah, you having the confidence in yourself that you'll overcome, but understanding that, you know, the journey may be long well, and that's just, you got to have that mindset going in. Yeah. We, I, I, we need to dive further in, in skill development um, because I, I know you were director of the SEAL junior officer training. And one, one of the things, a lot of potential SEALs, they've never swam, they've never shot a gun. I'm wondering what else you've understood now about skill development, where you can take someone from having no too little experience to basically executing flawlessly at a, at a subconscious level, similar to how you drive a car today. What have you understood about that that anyone can learn from? Yeah, you know, the, the saying holds true. Practice makes perfect. Now, um, we will put the time in to our young SEALs to get them up to uh, the level where they need to be. Um, and before we we cut anyone from training, we make sure we can look in the mirror and say, hey, we've done everything possible to get that person up to the standard. And if they fall short, then, then you're faced with a, a tough decision. One of my best tours in the SEAL teams was as the director of the junior officer training course. Um, one, those young men were just like sponges. The war was going on. They were hungry for as much knowledge because they knew they would be leading people on the battlefield. It was my job to develop them into what we call GFCs, ground force commanders. And it was the most rewarding tour I've ever had. And that's where I developed sort of this concept that I call the legacy of leadership. A good SEAL buddy, Rich Davini, who also was a tier one operator, uh, calls it the irony of leadership. That your job as a leader is to actually work yourself out of a job, is to train the next generation so that they're so good, they're better than you, that they take the organization to the uh, the next level. And so, you know, I sort of built this reputation that even when, uh, you know, the regular SEAL teams would come train with us at the tier one level, they would pull me aside uh, to, after training, to take the young officers aside and run them through professional development, much like I did in the uh, junior officer training course. I don't know why leaders in the business world don't recognize this, or maybe they just haven't tasted it. When you put a lot of time into the people below you, you just invest and pour into them. There is this greatest ROI, the greatest ROI you'll ever get. And that's the emotional ROI. Uh, it's the most selfless thing you can do. And you want to genuinely, uh, genuinely hope that the people can become better than you. That's the whole point. And that's why your legacy is built uh, upon that. But uh, I will say this, you know, skills important, technical, tactical skills important, regardless of your profession, but it's not as valuable as those soft skills. So look at investment banking, a great trader, one of the best traders who has the inability to show respect and empathy to people, to work well with others, will not continue into a leadership position. So it goes back to that Google study, Project Oxygen, where they said, hey, they did 10 years of analyzing what makes their best leaders uh, their best leaders. And technical skill came in, came in at number eight out of 10. The other uh, most important ones were the ability to work with others, the ability to inspire and give people a common purpose and a vision of where they're going. That's what's most important. So while skill can carry you to a certain leadership level, it won't carry you any higher. Now it's your ability to deal with people and to lead. And so you have to remember that. Yes, in the early years, much like those college graduates, become very good technically and tactically at what you do. But you need to also be focusing on those soft skills and watching great leaders, even poor leaders, and learning from what they do so that when you attain that level, that you're leading your team in a way that's productive, 
best respectful in creating a inclusive and let's say welcoming environment. You mentioned Rich Devini. Uh, yeah, he's been on the show, and it's funny what you're talking about right now is helping those underneath you. I was just messaging back and forth with Rich the other day. He he was helping develop me in something, and it's just like he probably doesn't have the time. And I'm even wondering why he's doing it, even now that he's out of the seals. Uh, he's helping those below him. Um, it's something he just can't escape, I guess. Yeah, his, his book, uh, The Attributes, is a is a, is a much read. Funny enough, Rich and I didn't talk. For a few years, you know, you lose touch with, with your, your, your buddies. And somehow we, we reconnected on LinkedIn and we both said, hey, we're writing a book. And I'm like, oh, we were writing it on talent, uh, you know, on special operations, the assessment and selection process and how that can be uh, lent to the business hiring uh, process. And I'm like, yeah, we're also writing about attributes. He's like, I'm writing a book called The Attributes. And uh, I'm like, okay, then we'll interview you. And we interviewed him for the book. And he gave, he gave some uh, great input because he was his book was hyper-focused on optimal performance based around those attributes. It wasn't the core focus of our book. Um, and now Rich and I are working on a lot of projects uh, together. The guy is a, uh, I consider him a, a, a great friend and also a mentor because he made it to a higher level than I did in the, uh, in the SEAL teams. Oh, that's very cool. You mentioned studying and learning from great leaders. I, I even know earlier you mentioned just the ability to study strategy, different books, things like that. What, what have been some of those foundational pillar in terms of resources for you through, throughout the years? You know, so I basically watched great leaders um, and you learn a lot from just watching. And if you get a moment to ask them, hey, why did you make that decision? Uh, then, you know, they'll give you invaluable feedback. Uh, the greatest resource I'm going to tell you is uh, Lisa Jaster, who's the third woman to uh, graduate Ranger School at the age of 37 and a mom of two. Uh, she calls it uh, leadership through readership. And I read so many great books uh, you know, the range range by David Epstein. I've never met David Epstein, but, you know, there, there's a few nuggets from that book that, you know, help maturate me as a leader. And though you won't meet a lot of the authors uh, that you, you, you read their books, they still, they're informal mentors. That's why reading is so important. Uh, and even reading uh, authors who you may not uh, agree with, uh, but, your greatest resource always has been and always will be uh, the ability to read at least one book a week, um, which I think, you know, again, look at, uh, I've heard uh, Mark Cuban reads like three to five books a week. That's insane. But look at, you know, how competent uh, and how prolific he's become as a, uh, as a leader. Yeah. The famous saying like a great books, a conversation with the greatest minds of all time. I forgot it was Aristotle who said that or whatnot. I, I want to dive back more, more into some of these different minds that you have and that military has that saying train for certainty, educate for uncertainty. I, I'm wondering you be, being a doctor and in that for so long, what is the difference there between training and education? So we're, we're actually uh, rich Divinity, myself, Brian Decker, who's the director of player development for the Indianapolis Colts. Uh, he's also a former green beret officer. Yeah. Uh, George Randall, my co-author from the talent war and Tom Lokar, who's a serial CHRO are writing a book right now. We're, we're actually doing a section on that. So trained to certainty. Um, when we say certainty, uh, you're talking about environments that are, let's say less ambiguous, um, uh, less volatile. And that's where skill truly, uh, wins out. That's where you can rely on your skill alone, but how many environments are like that? Yeah, combat is not like that. Um, and, and it is so volatile. Things explode and people wounded all around you. That's where your skills begin to degrade. And all you are left with, as Rich Devaney says, are your attributes. 
Now, um, you know, look at COVID for the business world. It threw everyone into this ambiguous, volatile uh, environment where information was changing. It seemed almost like on the hour during the early uh, the early days of March 2020, as well as April. They're still changing today. We'll get your people uh, vaccinated. Don't get your people vaccinated. Um, and that's where, again, you rely on your attributes and the attributes of your team. So uh, I'll, I'll give you a good example. The organizations that were investing in their people, I'm talking about their personal uh, development, their leadership development, uh, prior to COVID, were well suited to deal with the obstacles that COVID threw their way. Now, a lot of companies weren't doing that. Between 2015 and 2019, we had one of the largest economic booms in the history of our company. And when people are good times, consumer spending is up, they hey, they say, hey, we can sit back. We don't have to spend money on, on our people. The money's coming in regardless. Well, if you took that, uh, that attitude, uh, you probably saw your team falter in that ambiguous environment. So training and education is, is important. That's how we, we, we tighten up that skill. But beyond education, that's where that development, that personal development comes into place. And, and is that a form of training and education? Yes. But it requires somebody adept, a skilled leader to mold and shape other people. One of the problems with leadership development uh, with organizations, and, and this is, it's hard to tell uh, businesses this, is I ask who's in charge of your leadership development. And it's like a, a, a trivial task that they gave to somebody who's not equipped, who's not respected within the organization, who's not sat in the executive seat and felt that stress, that constant daily stress. Um, and, and so they don't have the reputation. They don't have the credibility to teach leadership development. Who you have teaching leadership development in your company matters. And that's not always the CEO. It's not the guy or the woman who started that company. They had a great idea. They helped build that company, but they may not be the, the best leader that everyone respects. So, you know, it, the toughest thing to do as a CEO is to look at, you know, we put uh, a, a woman who I highly respect, Carly Walton. She's 31. Uh, George is uh, 55. I'm 44. And, you know, even though we teach leadership for a living, we put Carly Walton, our president, in charge of developing all the people within our company to include us. And Carly takes the lead on that because she's so highly respected and she's working with the people day to day. So she was the right person to lead that. Now, do we support her and augment her leadership development curriculum for our people? We absolutely do. We practice what we preach. But, um, you know, beyond developing your people to build those attributes to succeed, um, because when people are pushed outside their mental and physical limits, again, that's when skills begin to degrade and you're left with only your attributes, your character, your integrity, your resiliency, your ability to be vulnerable. Um, you also actually have to segue or, or precursor that with who you hire into your organization. During your hiring process, you should be screening for those things. Because if you hire somebody who's extremely smart and has a high technical ability, but they're totally devoid of character and, and the core attributes that we know are required for hard times, that's not somebody I'm going to hire into the organization. Or if they do, I'm going to limit them to just that technical ability and not put them in charge of other people. Um, so, you know, this is actually a process of hiring the right people, continuing to pour into them with the development. And I guarantee if you do those two things well, the next hard time, the next recession, uh, your company is not only going to thrive, 
uh, they're going to come out stronger on the, uh, the other end. Mike, one of the things I would love to get your perspective on is you talk about pushing people right to their edge. That's how we learn. That's how we develop. It's such a nuanced thing, right? How do we understand when we're going to push someone too far to that breaking point or to not pushing them enough? Yes, absolutely. I'm going to say it's, it's a lot of trial and error. Okay. Um, and sometimes we push too far and we say, hey, let, let, let's come back a little. And we apologize for that. But, you know, Sean, let me give you the, the last thing I just did. I just got back from Mount Everest, not climbing Mount Everest. Uh, thousands of people have done that. Uh, and God bless them. It's insane. We actually skydived into the highest drop zones in the world. And even though I have 600 jumps and did this in the military on night vision with combat equipment, I was so nervous on every jump and I was hyper-focused walking through my mental checklist of what I needed to do, but that anxiety and that, that nervousness were there. That was my edge. That's why I went on this trip is because if I'm not pushing myself, I'm not growing. True learning takes place. Again, when you push people a little past their mental and physical limits and, um, you have to do it as well. If you're the leader of an organization, you're going to do that to your people. You have to show them, that you're willing to do it to yourself. And for me, that, that's what this trip was. Um, Talent War Group, the management consulting and executive search firm that, uh, that I founded, we actually have something called ITWX, Into the Wild Extreme, where we take business teams, usually executive level teams, and take them to Yosemite. And again, we, we have to do a lot of pre-work to understand the person, to, to, to gauge where their thresholds are. And that changes once you actually have them out in the wilderness. But... Um, we do that to the entire team because uh, very few business leaders have, uh, let's say, uh, mountaineering or outdoor skills. Some do, but we basically put them in charge of the trip. We make sure it's a, you know, we mitigate risk and it's a safe environment, but it is the best leadership development tool. You get them out of the office space. It is like a constant lesson in transformative and change leadership. Because as you get higher up the mountain, things change. The environment changes. And so as you're rotating them through leadership positions, they're learning about one another. They're learning about their strengths and weaknesses. Somebody may be great in the office. They're not as comfortable in this environment. And so you've got to help that person. Um, and you see different teams, especially from a sense of shared adversity. Ask yourself, why are the Green Berets? Why are the Navy SEALs? Why are the Marine Raiders so tight? for life, even people in the military as a whole, especially people who've seen combat, is because they have this thing called shared adversity. And I was actually talking to Eric Prince, the uh, the founder uh, of uh, Blackwater, and he said, and he's, he's, I respect him highly, great business leader. He said, it's the number one thing that the business world's missing, is that people don't have this common uh, bond. And when you take a, a team of 20 executives to the wilderness, and even though some of them did not thrive in the environment, but they learned a lot about themselves, they come out and they share a beer at the bar that, that same night. And you see this camaraderie and this shared uh, adversity built and they go back to their workplace as a different team. So um, we sort of formulated that again, based off the special operations model, but that's why we do what we do with the into the wild extreme. Do, do you see inflection type moments with that? Right. Like I, I know Gladwell um, and Andre Denner shouldn't talk about the 10,000 hours. I, I'm thinking, can we develop that, that, that overall mindset in, in a shorter condensed time frame, like you guys do out in Yosemite? Oh, absolutely. Even five days can be life-changing. We were in Everest for, for two weeks and that was a life-changing uh, moment for me, uh, particularly 
the jumps in the terrain. The terrain is so overwhelming. I mean, that's the world's most, uh, you know, highest terrain. Um, and it made me feel so insignificant and small. Now, I say that not in a self-deprecating way. I say that in a positive way, that it humbled me. The terrain humbled me. And it made me think, you know what? I'm a drop in the bucket of this history called Earth. And the terrain is so beautiful. It made me smile and think, I need to live better. I need to do more. I need to treat people with more respect. And especially, I need to take a moment. I need to breathe and take in all of, you know, God's green earth because it is magnificent. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm bringing those back. I'm reflecting. I'm writing an article of what I learned from my, my expedition to Mount Everest. Um, you know, it's also a learning mindset. You have to have a continual learning mindset, an open mindset to, to different way of doing things, different perspectives. And I see that, you know, especially for people when they get over 40, it's like, this is the way I do stuff. There's no, it's like constant rigidity. There's no adaptation. It, it's maybe successful in the past, but what got you here won't get you there. And, and you have to be open to change. Uh, who was it? It was uh, uh, Heraclitus that said, the only thing constant in life is change. And it is the truth. The second you stop resisting change, which means you no longer have a learning mindset, I guarantee you, change is going to just steamroll you. It's going to roll right over. And for a lot of companies, this is the biggest complacency or that lack of, of change is what kills companies. Hey, we're on top. We're the top of our industry. Our business model is sound. We just need to keep on doing what, what we're doing. And eventually those companies fall. And history is littered with companies that were on top that are no longer with us. You have to keep looking at the way you do things and say, is there a better way? Or what does our consumer want? Because your consumer is king. Not your perceptions, not your ideas. Consumer is king. And so that learning mindset, that's, that's what's required for people to stay on top. And we all know that being on top is the most dangerous position in life because everyone's coming for you. Yeah. Shoshin, that beginner's mind is, is just vital. Um, one of the things that, that you mentioned, I just, I just love the perspective um, when you were when you were coming in, just seeing how small and insignificant we each are. That, that's one of the things you hear out of all astronauts who when they when they go out to space, they look at this little blue dot and they realize how how small we, we actually are. One of the things I, I, I've got to hear more about um, is just some of the, the military free falls you do. So I was talking to a good buddy uh, who, who recently transitioned out of the SEALs. And I, I assumed it was jumping out of an airplane at 15,000 feet. And he said, no, no, no. The free fall out of a helicopter was the most intense thrill I've ever had in my life. You, you mentioned you were scared or I don't know if you just a little bit of uncertainty going into it. What's going on in your mind? And then how are you, what's the internal dialogue like as you're about to jump? So the reason, the, the reason I was nervous and, and arguably, again, these are the highest drop zones in the world. First drop zone was at 12, uh, 12, five, uh, thousand feet, uh, 12,500 feet. Uh, the highest we could get in the United States, Leadville was 10,000. Now, I've got to do a shout out to the complete parachute solutions team led by Fred Williams, the president, who's also a former SEAL from, from my last command. And I could not have been surrounded by, you know, uh, better professionals. They bring that military uh, mindset and way of doing things to mitigate risk, and they mitigated risk to the lowest level. Still, weather can change on a dime, and that happened to us, and we had a very scary incident. Uh, and then also the canopy controls 
uh, controllability is much different at that altitude. It travels faster. And so uh, we did training in Colorado to mitigate that risk to the lowest level. It still exists. But actually jumping out of helicopters, I love that part. That part's awesome. So usually the, the, the typical human reaction is when you fall, because when you come off an airplane that's doing about 120 to 140 knots, you, you hit your relative speed pretty quick and you're, you're flying your body. Well, when you jump out of the helicopter, it's like jumping off a, a roof. Yeah. It takes a while to build that speed up. So naturally, people do the swim. They start grabbing for air. Uh, I don't think anyone on the team had a problem. You stepped off the, uh, the helicopter and you just held it. And if you held it long enough, then your body picks up the relative speed and you're, you're flying your body. Um, I think everyone was more concerned with making it to the holding area and setting yourself up for a safe and successful landing. And that's where the concern was. Because if you miss the drop zone, and these were very what we call confined drop zones, there's not many options outside of there. You may be landing on the side of a mountain, and that's a very complicated prospect, one for, for injury or even recovering you. And so that's that's where the nervousness and fear were. But again, a testament to the complete parachute solution teams who trains the majority of our uh, American special operations in military freefall, um, they did an outstanding job. Now, military freefall, you know, one, there's there's only two units that are truly trained to, to uh, do that mission. Uh, a lot, almost all special operations goes through military freefall, free but only two uh, units are truly trained to conduct that mission in combat. And, and some that, that, that comment uh, may piss off a lot of people, but uh, in my opinion, that's that's the truth. And, and the people from those units would back me up on that. Um, it's a complex mission set and there's a lot more risk. You know, if somebody said, hey, we're going to have to do a night uh, military freefall uh, jump into this combat mission, our first response would be, is there any other way to get in there other than doing the military freefall? And if there's not, uh, that's why we're trained to the standard. We, you know, the, the, it's a very scary prospect when you jump out of an airplane at 18,000 feet at night on night visions with full combat equi uh, equipment, and there's 30 of you, and you're all trying to do what you call a hop and pop, usually pulling about four seconds after you exit the, uh, the aircraft so you can line up. And it's, again, you're looking through almost like toilet rolls. That's your depth of vision is, uh, is, is not large in the ability for two people to collide. And if you wrap up, in your canopies with all that equipment, it's pretty much uh, uh, the outcome is, is not good. So that's why there's uh, there's risk involved with that that mission. And again, it's it's you know you have to train at that mission set a lot in order to pull that off. And every time I did those night jumps, yeah, my nervousness was at a all time high. Um, it's yeah, you you are so cumbersome. It's so hard to move with all that combat equipment. Well, well thinking about the skill development I, I had a blast this morning just going through a bunch of your videos uh jumping and then the actual landing and so i'll link those up in the show notes because you, you, you'll watch them i think like the, the feet will start to tingle and, and you'll you'll get a little bit nervous but you'll just appreciate how intricate complex uh, and skilled you are for being able to do that uh i know we've got to wrap up here in a minute uh i definitely want to make sure the, the listeners get linked up with everything you're putting out uh i know the book the talent war where else do you want the listeners staying connected with you mike uh, so you can find the Talent War at our company page, um, the, I'm sorry, talentwargroup.com, um, Um, And then, you know, we write the Everyday Warrior column for, for Men's Journal. Uh, there's more coming from that. Um, about to drop an article because it's the Marine Corps birthday tomorrow, uh, 246 years uh, of defending our nation. 
And I was uh, privileged to go speak to 500 plus Marines on July 31st. And let me tell you, they are the next best generation. I know a lot of people from, especially my generation, will dog on the millennials and the Gen Zs. They're awesome. They're awesome. And the best hope we can have is that they're better than us. And that's why we need to continue pouring into them. Um, but, uh, you know, Sean, thank you for having me on. Uh, thank you for these discussions. I love having them. I've learned and hopefully the audience has taken away one or two nuggets that can help them. Awesome. Mike, well, thanks again for your service. Thanks for joining us here on What Got You There. Hope you have a great rest of the day. Perfect. Thanks, Sean. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.